Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kokkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other topics in the coming weeks. My guest today is Silvio Bär, Professor of Classics at the University of Oslo. Silvio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karin. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, so your work, uh, Silvio, engages with ancient Greek mm. literature in particular. Um, and your special topic is the epic and its heroes. So I'd like to start with the question on who is your favorite hero and what makes him, I assume it's a him, uh, what makes him special? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I, I don't think I have one favorite hero. Uh, there are several epic characters I find interesting, male and female. Um, but uh, perhaps just let me mention two of them. The epic character I've worked on most extensively is Heracles. And uh, what I find particularly interesting and also challenging uh, about Heracles is the fact that he's actually not an epic hero proper, but that he still nonetheless uh, plays a role in almost all Greek epics. For example, uh, he's a, uh, Heracles is a generation or two older than uh, the warriors who fight in the Trojan War. So he does not participate in the Trojan War, but he is mentioned and he's remembered by the warriors of the Trojan War as a role model. And uh, this is something I find quite intriguing. The idea that even the big heroes of the Trojan War have role models from the, so to say, good old days who they look up to. Yeah, So that would be one, one example of a potential favorite hero. Another epic character I find very interesting is Odysseus. And um, in the Odysseus already turns up in the Iliad. There he is a, a major warrior. He, mm. he is already a gifted speecher, but it's actually only in the Odyssey where he, he, uh, he is fully developed as the prototypical trickster. Uh, as uh, mm. uh, as the figure we know cunning him. Ulysses yeah. exactly uh, cunning Ulysses uh, much travelled Odysseus that sort of thing and what what I find particularly interesting there is um, the fact that despite his prototypical slyness his intelligence as you as you mentioned yeah um, he makes mistakes and he has to learn his lesson and he has to learn his lesson the hard way um, for example the best example to illustrate is the episode on the on the island of the cyclops yeah uh, so thanks to his inventiveness uh, odysseus and his crew they managed to escape but then when uh, odysseus eventually feels safe he makes stupid mistakes uh, he reveals his identity towards mm. the cyclops yeah because and before he had said my name is nobody exactly exactly yeah. that is that famous story i am nobody then nobody blinded me all that and but then he just can't resist the temptation to say oh and by the way i am a disuse yeah <laughs> and then the, the the result is devastating because uh, the cyclops polyphemus is the son of poseidon the sea god poseidon and so Cyclops asks his father, Poseidon, to, to take revenge on Odysseus uh, for, for vengeance on his behalf. And then Odysseus in time misery begins. Yeah. So, and I mean, we can say despite his above average intelligence, Odysseus has made a stupid mistake and he has to, to pay a high price for it. But, and that is the interesting thing, he learns from it. 
Yeah, because from now on, he makes bloody sure that he no longer reveals his identity mm. so carelessly. And that's what I find interesting about Odysseus. He shows us that being clever does not mean that you don't make mistakes. Being clever means that you learn from your mistakes. Mm. So you refer to these characters as epic characters, whereas I've used the term heroes. Do you see a difference or a significant difference between those? Well, I mean, a, a hero is a type of epic character. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so epic character is basically any character, any figure that turns up, major or minor. Yeah. Whereas a hero would be a hero is perhaps a bit outdated today. Perhaps a warrior. All right, but I'm happy to stick to, <laughs> yes, to the uh, Well, it's just a traditional um, way of referring yeah, yeah, mm. heroes or heroines, if you want. Yes, so well, and they think exist of the Amazons, yeah. 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 Camilla in, in Virgil. Exactly, mm. exactly, yeah. yeah. So these epic characters that you're working on, they're several thousand years old. And yet it seems that even today, yeah, we, we can't stop telling their stories. And I'm thinking, for example, of the, the recent bestsellers like Miller's uh, Song of Achilles. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that, that keeps us fascinated with characters like Achilles, Odysseus, mm -hmm. Heracles? Well, I'm, I'm very glad you're asking me that question because uh, as a classicist, I'm, of course, often ask questions like, why classics? Why these old texts? Uh, what, what What's so interesting about them still? And uh, I think actually, I mean, Just, you just mentioned a brilliant example, Madeleine Miller's best-selling novel, the, the Song of Achilles, which is, I think, the best proof that these stories simply mean something to us, that there is something about um, that these stories and these heroes or characters. And um, when we uh, stick a bit to, to Miller's example, then one point that comes immediately to my mind would, would be there, the change of perspective. Yeah, because uh, Miller's novel tells the story of the Iliad from the perspective of Patroclus, Achilles' best friend. And the story takes up a motive that is already latent Iliad, though not explicit, and that was already a matter of discussion in antiquity, namely the idea of a potential homoerotic mm. erotic, uh, attraction between the two, or even a relationship. And um, I mean, of course, we could say, well, this is just a change of perspective that fell on fruitful ground, uh, that kind of hit the zeitgeist. But I think the ultimate explanation lies deeper, because I think that in the event, the reason why those characters like Achilles and Odysseus still fascinate is, is because on the one hand, we can relate to them, but on the other, they're also quite alien to us. Mm. Yeah. So we could say, if you want to, to put it a, more, a bit more sophisticatedly, we, I could say it's the combination of familiarity and alienation at the same time. And this is, I think, something that just fascinates us. Because a, a character we know in and out, a character that is exactly like us, that would be boring. Mm. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the other hand, a character to whom we can't relate at all would be totally alien, would be disconcerting. Perhaps Achilles is a good example, again, to use. When you think of Achilles in the Iliad, in the Iliad, the entire Iliad begins with and is about Achilles withdrawing from the battlefield mm. because he has been publicly humiliated. He has been publicly shamed by Agamemnon, the, the commander-in-chief. And this is feeling, uh, the feeling of humiliation. It is something we all know or we, all, we, we can all relate to somehow. Yeah, These days, perhaps even more so when you think of 
all these things like online shaming, public shaming, that sort of thing. But then the reason why Achilles has been publicly shamed is totally alien to us. Um, it is because Agamemnon has taken away his favorite slave, Briseis, a young woman, in, in an act of vengeance. And this is obviously something we, we can't relate to because the, uh, I mean, the Greeks, they were slaveholders. Slavery was a natural part of their life this this is something that alienates to us totally mm. from them yeah so we can say i would argue we can relate to achilles feeling his feelings but we can't relate to the reasons behind the feeling so that would be for me uh, an example where we have this familiarity and alienation mm. at the same time another aspect in my opinion surely also plays a role is the versatility of those old epic heroes or figures and here perhaps we could uh, take Odysseus as an example mentioned Odysseus before already um, he is and he's always been best known for his intelligence his superior intelligence so this is a stable characteristic of, of Odysseus yeah there is no Odysseus who is stupid um, but the way his intelligence is viewed that changes over time. That mm -hmm. varies considerably. So we have already in Attic Tragedy, for example, in Euripides, we find a decidedly negative Odysseus, where his intelligence, his cunningness, his slyness has a negative connotation. So he, he's the yeah. villain? Yeah, he is the villain. He's a, he's a bad guy. I mean, Hecabe freaks out, totally freaks out in, in the Trojan women when she's informed that she is going to be Odysseus' slave. The idea that she's going to be a slave, that is one thing, but that she's going to be Odysseus' slave, that that freaks her totally out. And then, for example, also in, in Dante, in the Divine Comedy, there he is, he, he goes straight to hell, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> he's such a bad guy. So here we could perhaps say he's, on the one hand, Odysseus is stable enough to make him a recognizable figure through history, his intelligence being his main feature. But on the other hand, he's also sufficiently versatile uh, so he can be adapted to the needs of new literary genres, new media, the zeitgeist, whatever. Because of the fascination that this character... Exactly, exactly. I mean, he holds, he is yeah. a, a person with superior intelligence, is fascinating, yeah. Uh, so that, that makes him a fascinating character. But then the fact that you can play on this and view him very differently mm. and change him accordingly or that he can be changed, that's, that makes him attractive in different genres, in different periods. So more more generally, actually, I mean, you you gave Odysseus as as a very striking example of uh, an epic character who, who travels across history. Mm -hmm. um, do you think all epic characters or all epic characters who would answer to the description of hero um, have that potential, or do you think there are some epic characters or some heroic qualities that tie a character to to a particular time? And, and perhaps cognitive um, aspects play mm -hmm. a role in that um, versatility or this adaptability to different periods as well. Yeah, well, that is a that is a great question. I, I must confess I don't have a clear answer here. <laughs> I mean, Achilles and Odysseus clearly are examples for characters who do have that potential, yeah? Um, but I, I really don't know. And I, I might add, not yet, because... Uh, Research on how exactly heroes and other epic characters, male as well as female ones, travel through literary history is very much at the heart of a major research project of mine at the moment. So um, 
your question is really hits in the focus, uh, hits in the center of what I'm actually trying to figure out um, at the moment. So, uh, well, I could also say, ask me again in a couple of years. <laughs> Do you have any educated guesses? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it's it's always much more difficult to, to show that something is impossible mm. than to show that something is impossible. But... I frankly, I can't think of a major epic character who, from antiquity who did not have any sort of afterlife. And um, as a general tendency, or as a rule, so to say, a general rule, I'd rather say that characters tend to be to become more rounded in the in the course of literary history, uh, because often new stories are are being invented to supplement gaps or perceived gaps in, for example, in the biography of a character. Uh, again, Achilles would be a, an example for that. For example, Achilles and the story of his vulnerability. <laughs> we, we all know the story of uh, Achilles' heel. Yeah, so the, the only spot on his body where he is vulnerable, where he can be wounded and killed. Yeah, and then this is what actually eventually happens. It kind of has to, doesn't it? it? it well, it has to, yes, exactly. It's, uh, it's uh, well, I mean... He has to be killed at some point. <laughs> and um, I mean, this is a very famous story. But when we look at the ancient sources, the first source we have is actually very late. It's from the from the first century AD. Yeah. And uh, I mean, of course, it's always possible that it goes back to later sources we don't have. But still, we have several stories about attempts to make Achilles immortal already in the, in the Homeric hymns. But uh, the story we all know as canonical, that's is as late as the, the early Roman Empire. So that's the story of his mom grabbing him by the heel. And... Yeah, I mean, the, the the story of not necessarily his mother, but uh, someone, it may be his mother, <laughs> grabbing him and trying to make him immortal. That is older. But then the story that is explicitly because where she is holding him on his heel, that this yeah. is then the um, immortal spot. That is, uh, according to the sources we have, that is uh, uh, early... Roman Empire mm. source. Or another example would be stories about Achilles' childhood and his youth. That is something we we never hear anything about in the Iliad. So, uh, but then also from the early Roman Empire, we have stories supplementing incidents from what happens in his childhood, in his youth, that sort of thing. So, to generalize, I'd say a character that is not fully fledged or fully mature, so to say, from the very beginning, has a strong potential to travel through history, to, to be reused, to be reshaped in new literary genres, in new media, exactly because he or she offers the opportunity for expansion and elaboration. And I think here, because you asked me about the cognitive aspect, I mm. think here, here the cognitive element comes in. Because literary, to put it very simple, but I think very true, literary characters are not real people. Mieke Ball once famously said that literary characters are paper people. Paper people. Or papyrus people. Papyrus people. <laughs> In the case of antiquity, yeah. But, of course, literary characters resemble real people. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't go down as characters. And because they, I mean, they're not real people, but we want them to be real people. Let's put it that way. Because of that, we as humans have an urge to make them more human, so to say, and to attribute human traits to them. And so... They are being made more human in, in the course of military history. I think that is the point. And, I mean, a grown-up needs a childhood history, let's put it that way. So, at some point, people realize, but we don't know anything about mm. Achilles' youth, about his childhood. So, those stories were made up. And I think that is just a human 
natural process that has its root in this cognitive urge to see literary characters as real people and not as paper people. Yeah, to have that relatability. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And these these stories about the, the childhood of Achilles, mm -hmm. do they explain his character or why he does certain things? Oh yes, oh yeah. yes, they do. I mean, there is this this great story, I, I don't recall it in it, It is details now, but there is this great story that Achilles was hidden on an island in female clothing, disguised as a girl. But then I think some guy blowed a trumpet and then he jumped out because he wanted to go to war. And then his, his disguise was revealed, that sort of thing. And that is, of course, an anecdote that explains it has an ideological function, in say, in mythology, explaining that it was in his very nature to be a mm. warrior. Yeah, that warfare was what he wanted. He couldn't help it. <laughs> in some of your other research, you suggest that not only, you know, do we generate more and more stories um, about mm -hmm. these epic characters, but also do the readers, for example, of um, the Homeric epics have something like an, an epic memory. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what that is and, and how it works? Yes. Well, when I use the term epic memory, I use it with reference both to the readers of the Homeric epics, uh, as well as in relation to the memory of the characters in the epics. Yeah. So it's in both cases, what I mean is basically pre-existing knowledge that both readers and characters have in relation to the, uh, to the world of epic. Yeah. So, yeah, if we take the example of the Iliad again, At the heart of the Iliad, of the entire narrative of the Iliad, is one incident that takes place in the last year of the Trojan War. Um, the thing about what I, what I said before about Achilles' um, public humiliation and the consequences then. So the narrated time of the Iliad covers a period of about roughly 50 days in the 10th mm. final year of the war. So what would be the epic memory then? of the readers of the Iliad as well as of the characters in the Iliad would be anything that happened in the world of epic before that 10th year. So, for example, the reasons why the, the war broke out, the judgment of Paris, that, that sort of thing. So that would be uh, an example of, of the epic memory. And in practice, it is, it is important because it's very typical of the Homeric epics that they're actually full of allusions all over the place to such previous events. And uh, as I said, what is interesting here is that that really epic memory is something that readers and characters share. And this in turn has to do with the fact that the stories of the ancient epics, like the Trojan War or others, they were largely common knowledge at that time. So I mean, we, we don't know when the Iliad was first performed and where, but when the Iliad was first performed, we can assume, strongly assume, or we must assume that the stories as such were not new. So everyone knew the stories, or at, at least the main storylines. Yeah, not, not, not all the details perhaps, but the main storylines more or less by heart. Yeah, I mean, this again, why this is so has several reasons. There are several causes, so to say, why people knew the stories. One cause is the mythological background of the stories. So uh, ancient epic is for, for the most part based on the mythology of the Greeks. And mythology is basically, myth mythology are stories that are part of the collective memory of a culture. So everyone knows the stories. Another related cause is the oral background uh, of, the Homer of the Homeric epics. 
before the Iliad and also the Odyssey were written down, um, there had been a centuries old, very old, we don't know how old, but it must have been centuries old oral tradition where these and similar stories were told and retold time and again. So they were performed orally, yeah. So they were widely known. These are the main reasons. And maybe a third reason is also, and now now comes the cognitive element mm. in again. I think we really essentially need to assume that the ancient Greeks and also the Romans for that matter had a very different idea about what a good story is. In what sense? <laughs> in in the sense, I, I'm now. I think I'm now really, really simplifying things. But mm. I think we can say that basically, for us, a good story is a new story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would. I would argue that this is a romantic idea. I, uh-huh. I would have said that. Yeah. Sort of. 19th century yeah. and onwards. Yes. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. yeah. Where, where that really changes where you go from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you—I don't know—if you're at the, if you're at the airport and you want something to read to, during your flight, you buy a novel uh, in the in, in the local books bookshop. You expect a new, exciting story, and you'd be disappointed if it retold a story you already know, <laughs> probably. Except probably. if it's the Song of Achilles. If, except if it's the Song of Achilles, exactly. But even there, you want a change of perspective. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be told from the perspective of Patroclus. Otherwise, it's, otherwise it would just be a retranslation. That would mm. be fair enough. But I think that that is really a difference difference between us and the ancients, so to say, if we can say that so, because for them, uh, a good story was an old story, Mm -hmm. an old story told afresh. Perhaps in a new literary genre, perhaps in a new medium, with different twists, but essentially the same old story. So they were, or in other words, they were not bored hearing the same old story over and over again, as long as a an epic singer was able to to perform it in a way that made it appealing. Yeah. So this is a, an attention to actually the way in which it is put together. Definitely, yeah. definitely, and we see that much uh, much more clearly than later when it comes to tragedy. Yeah, because in, in, in Attic tragedy, for the most part, Attic tragedy is based on mythology, so unknown stories. But then often you have plot twists that do not completely overturn the story but that given new emphasis, new twists uh, yeah. to the story. I mean, like Medea Yeah, yeah for example, for yeah. example, yeah. Or, or a, a good example that is still discussed in scholarship is Sophocles, um, King Oedipus. Yeah. So there, there, is a, or there are theories saying that uh, the self-blinding uh, mm-hmm. of Oedipus was actually an invention of Sophocles. Difficult to say, but uh, if it was so, then this was certainly... An unexpected plot twist. So it was the known story, yeah, but it was a new way of, like, soft of Oedipus dealing with the situation at the end. Yeah, and now yeah. we can't, I guess, imagine him, you know, not ending. Well, yeah, up exactly, because the story has become so canonical. Yeah. yeah, when when we hear Oedipus the king, that's that is all. The entire reception has gone through Sophocles. That is tightly, tightly tied to Sophocles. We can't imagine of anything else. Yeah. So that would be our epic memory in a way. Yeah, or our tragic memory in our that tragic. sense. <laughs> Very true, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, you mentioned earlier on um, that there is a tendency that some epic characters, especially the major heroes, will, will reappear across mm-hmm. different epics. And that there are even some epics that we have lost, but that we know about because the heroes make an appearance in another epic. I guess Heracles may be an example mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely, um, yeah. How do you, as a classicist, approach these, well, let's call them heroes without texts? <laughs> I very much like that expression, heroes without texts. With your permission, I, I'd like to take over that expression for my research <laughs> in the future. Yeah, I think that, that is very fitting. Uh, yeah, to answer your question, I well, I've mentioned before that most, if not all, ancient epic heroes have some sort of what I call transtextual history, meaning that they travel through literary history. Yeah, Some stay in the epic genre, other uh, go over to other genres, like, for example, drama. But you rightly say that lots of texts have been lost or ha have not been transmitted, Yeah, have not made it into the medieval manuscript tradition. And uh, yes, this, this is a big issue, is a big problem, of course, in classics, because we know of lots of texts that existed. We have titles. Sometimes we have a couple of quotes, fragments, as we call them then. And um, yeah, I mean, Heracles would be, again, an excellent example, um, because as I said before, Heracles uh, makes an appearance in almost all existing Greek epics. In the, in the Iliad, in the Odyssey, later also in Apollonius of Rhodes, Argonautica, etc. But he's never a protagonist. He's always only a, a very minor figure. Or you meet him in the underworld. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, in that. the Odyssey, yeah. you meet him in the underworld, yeah. But, but when I say minor, I don't mean unimportant. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that is part of my argument in my research that I say that Heracles is a very important figure, although he's only a minor character. But the point is that we do know of lots of Greek epics that dealt with the life and the deeds of Heracles at great length, that did have Heracles as the protagonist. But those are all lost. We only have the titles, a couple of scattered fragments. So yes, this is a big issue. And, uh, well, I mean, of course, you can just ignore this fact and say, well my bad or their bad or our bad, whatever. <laughs> but uh, of course, there are still more than enough Greek and Latin texts to read. Yeah, a scholar's lifetime wouldn't, wouldn't be enough to read all the Greek and Latin that exists. But uh, and here again, the cognitive comes, of course, in, uh, I'm sure you agree, the human mind loves mysteries. Yeah. And the less we know about something, the, the more, more we, know, we want to know it. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> so it just, it just triggers us. Yeah. And, um, one very traditional method is, of course, simply to kind of extract as much from the existing fragments as possible, yeah? To make assumptions, inferences, educated guesses, let's put it that way, uh, about the rest of the text, what it may have looked like. Um, but, of course, that, that is very speculative, yeah? Um, so you couldn't recreate an, an epic of... Heracles. Well, I mean, some people have tried it, uh, mm. which would, of course, be, well, fascinating, but <laughs> there is so much uh, speculation involved. But, I mean, there are there are attempts, uh, perhaps not at recreating in that sense, but, again, in Homeric studies, there is a so-called area of neo-analysis. Mm. So, neo-analysis acknowledges that the Iliad and the Odyssey are fully-fledged poems, in their own right, but at the same time, neo-analysis claims that there are traces of other lost epics hidden, so to say, in, in all, the, 
all the references and allusions to other stories, which I which I mentioned before, like again, for example, Heracles is a good is a good example. Uh, I keep mentioning Heracles because he's kind of top on my mind. Um, as I said, there are lots of allusions to Heracles or he- references to Heracles in the Iliad and also amongst other things to his destruction of Troy. Troy was destroyed twice, first by Heracles and then it was rebuilt and then it was destroyed for a second time, definitely, by the Greeks. So they're kind of completing his, exactly, exactly. his work. And one theory is, uh, about which I've read at least, is that some scholars claim that those allusions to the First Trojan War actually ma- amount to a f- something like a, an epic about a First Trojan War that must have existed at some point, but that, that hasn't survived. And then uh, the Iliad would basically be the successor epic to that. But, uh, I mean, you probably realize from the way I'm phrasing it, I'm very skeptical here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it all sounds fascinating and you can't, the problem is you can't disprove it because it's so speculative. Yeah, the more speculative a theory is, the more difficult it gets to actually disprove it. Yeah, so it can't be proven, it can't be disproven. So my final answer to your, or final, not final, but my answer to your question is at the end of the day very simple, actually. I I really approach the epic heroes in and through those texts we have. And I acknowledge the fact that I may be missing something here and there because we don't have all the texts. So these epics, you've already talked a little bit about this. They have a particular oral quality. They come out of an oral tradition. There is an an oral performance aspect. Uh, to them and there is also and I've read this from your research and and others certain traces of orality in in the text itself for example in the epithets Mm -hmm. that run through epics like we've talked about cunning Ulysses which keeps recurring Achilles of the swift foot and perhaps also other sort of repetitive um, patterns in these texts when one reads the epic this of course is quite strange to a modern reader. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just that this is an old story, but also that this is a story uh, written in a way that is suited to, I think, a quite different reception um, situation. But maybe there is something else to these repetition than simply aiding the, the memory um, of the singer. Um, what could be the function of these epithets and, yeah. and repetitions in, in a narrative? Well, that's an excellent question. Um I'm afraid a detailed answer would would uh, result in a very complex elaboration. <laughs> um, so, well, well, let me try to give the bigger picture here. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a, a typical feature of the Homeric epics, something that every reader noticed in an instant, th- those so-called epithets, yeah? So adjectives that accompany the name of a character by default. So you mentioned... Cunning of this use, much enduring of this use, yeah. Swift-footed Achilles, many others, red-haired Menelaus, that sort Ray of Ida thing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is important. You're mentioning that also. The gods, the deities have epithets. Yeah, so grey-eyed Athenius, a bright-eyed Athene, uh, is perhaps the ma- most famous one. Laughter-loving Aphrodite. That that's uh, many, many, Zeus many. Zeus of yeah. the Aegis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So there is there is actually a useful Wikipedia 
entry on exactly that on the English Wikipedia with uh, in English, all in English, with a long list of all these epithets. So if any of the, our listeners wants to, to check up on that, uh, they find the information. Well, what is interesting as well as puzzling is the fact that these epithets sometimes, often, uh, are used without seemingly fitting context. Yeah, for example, uh, Achilles may be called swift-footed even when he's sitting in his hut, sulking. Mm. And that's what he's doing most of the time in the Iliad, isn't he? Uh, or Odysseus may be called much enduring e even when he's totally at ease and relaxed, like we are here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, why is that? And you've already given a partial answer in your question. These epithets are essentially traces of the oral background, the oral origin of the Homeric epics. And uh, in this context, there is one name of a scholar I need to mention here, namely uh, the name of Milman Parry. Mm -hmm. Milman Parry was an, was an American scholar who, about 100 years ago, wrote a PhD about the language of Homer. And there he showed, he was able to show systematically that those epithets were the product of an oral origin of the Homeric epics and that the epic singer in that oral world of, of sung epic poetry would use those epithets not according to context but according to metrical convenience. So Achilles may be called swift-footed simply because the epithet fitted the metrical context, the hexameter at that point. And so it can be slotted in. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It gives you so, the amount of syllables you need. Exactly, yeah. So the epic singer was singing about Achilles sitting in his hut, being sulky, whatever, but at that specific point in the hexameter, he had a slot left for swift-footed, so he would fit it in. Mm. And he wouldn't care about what the context was, but he would care about that he was improvising, singing, playing his guitar <laughs> and uh, having to fit in an epithet. Yeah, And that, that was part of Parry's theory that this would help the, here the cognitive aspect comes in. Parry did cognitive research, he just didn't call mm. it cognitive. Yeah, that at this point he would, he would while singing swift-footed and playing his guitar, he would already have a bit of time to think about his next line. Yeah. <laughs> And um, that is was at the time and still is, without exaggeration, a revolution in Homeric studies. Yeah, we can still say from today's perspective that Parry, by and large, was right. But what about then the yeah. narrative function if we start moving beyond exactly? Uh, Parry? Well, that comes that comes now, kind of after Parry. Mm. Yeah. So if you ask, I'm not a, a specialist on that field, but if you asked a Homeric scholar today. Of course, it depends who you ask, uh, but most would probably, when you ask them about Parry, would probably say, yes, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Parry was essentially right, but his theories were simply too, too one-sided, or let's say a bit too technical, too mechanical. Yeah. So it's it's not always, or not, not simply, not just always about this mechanical putting in whatever suits the hexameter. This may be the case, but there may be cases where an epithet may, in fact, be meaningful in a certain context. Of course, we can't travel back in time and ask Homer or whoever it was what he meant in each single case, but we can, I mean, we're all also literary scholars, so we read texts, we look at contexts, we try to make sense of what's in the, the text. We do the second best thing. Well, exactly, we do the second Homer. best yeah. thing, yes, exactly. So, for example... 
an epithet in a certain context may have a, an intratextual function, meaning uh, intratextuality means basically means that it's it it refers back or it, it has a reference to something in the same text. Yeah. So if you, for example, have a cluster of the same epithet uh, in a scene in the passage, then this cluster of epithets may serve the function of putting the scene together or perhaps uh, linking two passages together, that sort of thing. So that is one example. Or another another point, and here again the cognitive aspect comes in, I would say, uh, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, would, I would argue that when what is said and what is, let's say, what is said and what is happening, yeah, like again, swift-footed Achilles lying in his hut, there is a clash of semantics and pragmatics, so to say, and that results in a cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So the reader or the listener needs to resolve that cognitive dissonance. And this may result, for example, in uh, the epithet being perceived as ironic. Yeah. Mm. So the, to make again, to make a long story short, Parry was right. Yes, but it's not as simple as that. These epithets can have a function. They clearly have a function in certain contexts. And in some, in some contexts, uh, it may be relatively easy to figure out what mm. their function may have been in others. It may be more difficult. And we may have to draw on things like cognitive Exactly, theory. exactly. Yeah. Which uh, for a long time I keep saying is a concept that I think should be used more often in literary studies, this, this idea of the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which I find a, a useful idea yeah, because this is something that, that often happens. Yeah, I mean, whenever someone says something but... Uh, I don't know if I if I tell you a joke, but I'm crying at the same time. It doesn't go together, so, so it, it triggers a, a cognitive dissonance and in a you. Challenge exactly, for you yeah, to... it challenges you to make sense mm. of that contradiction, and the same also goes for for, for literature, doesn't it? And and yeah. of course for ancient texts. I mean, we already talked about the mm -hmm. way in which these are also alienating characters. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that would also for us, not for for the people at that time, but for us. This is also a sort of a cognitive dissonance uh, that we can totally understand that Achilles is offended and angry, but we can't relate to the reasons behind it. Mm. That triggers a cognitive dissonance in us. Yeah, so we have to somehow come to terms with, with that as well. So this is yeah. one of the ways in which you as a classicist then make use of, of cognitive approaches. Yes, so it would be a, a challenge where I think I think this cognitive approach can be uh, a way of tackling the challenge, yes, mm. absolutely. Or at least recognize the challenge, yeah. Because that is often kind of at the heart of a challenge is to actually recognize that there is a there is something going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to say, or that, that there is something that needs to be resolved. Yeah. yeah. And that, does that, where, where do you see, I mean, this is an issue, I think, that applies to classics, mm -hmm. but, but also to other historical approaches to literature, the navigation of the, the historical distance. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it also, I would, I would have to ask you the question now, <laughs> because you're in, you're in early, no, you're a early modern, modernist, yeah. early modernist, yeah. But I would argue that the same problem also applies to when, when you're working with literature on the, from the 19th century. We tend to think, oh yeah, this is all the same stuff. We can read it. It's it's more or less the same language. Yeah, we don't need a translation at least. Yeah, but but there may be we still need may, an addition. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and there too. may be historical gaps. There may be things going on that are totally different, totally 
may be totally alien. We may mm. perhaps not realize they're alien, but they may be. <laughs> so, yeah, and yeah. yet there are also many things that because of certain cognitive continuities, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we recognize. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, here we're back at the... We, we need a mixture between familiarity and alienation. Mm. If something is totally alien to us, we can't relate yeah, to it. We can't do yeah. anything with it. Yeah, yeah right. To conclude yeah. um, our interview, I'd like to invite you to um, share your recommendations. Yes, of course. Happily. Um, well, I mean, I've been talking about the, the Homeric epics so much. <laughs> so my primary recommendation would really be uh, as simple as to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. So anyone who has not read Homer should read Homer. <laughs> it's great fun. It's and uh, there's, of course, there's, of course, the question of which translation to choose. And um, Homer is probably one of the most translated classics at all, if not the most translated. My personal favorite is uh, still Rich Richmond Lattimore, the translation by Richmond Lattimore from the 1950s, 1960s. A bit old-fashioned to read, sometimes not always super accurate, but what I think Lattimore really gets better than all the others, in my opinion, is that he catches the, the essence of the poetic flow of Homeric original, yeah. So when I read Lattimore, I really feel like this is equivalent to what Homer sounds like, yeah. High praise indeed. Yes, <laughs> but I know, I mean, uh, Lattimore, is, is, his, his translations are kind of either you like them or you don't, yeah. So I, I know some of my colleagues, when they, they hear to me, they will shout out and say no. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are lots of others good ones mm. yeah uh, or if you don't know just take two very different translations compare them look what you like best yeah so I mean that's actually if <laughs> I don't want to be so partial my recommendation is read the Iliad read the Odyssey choose whichever translation suits you best and uh, use a bit of time and energy to basically just get to know them mm. yeah that's a very nice recommendation thank you so much uh, Silvio most welcome. Yes, thanks for having conversation me. Wonderful <laughs> conversation on uh, Ulysses, Achilles, Heracles, and and everything between. Uh, exactly. All of those. Exactly. Of course, it's not just. I mean, we've talked about, a lot about uh, Homer. Yeah, it's not just Homer. Yeah, there is a, a lot more to read. And there's also, if I may add, that mm. there, is a, there is a lot of interesting research going on in classics related to, to cognitive research. So there is a lot on Homer, but there's also, for example, on on ancient rhetoric. Um, there is a lot of interesting research there. And uh, there's a web page uh, called Cognitive Classics, uh, which, uh, which I can recommend. There you can, you can find uh, information on things that are going on in, in classics relating to cognitive research. Thank you very much. Thank you.